you know, we as a human species have a very long and and uh, pretty obvious history with tr- trading away convenience, you know, for quote unquote creepiness. You know, when we say like, oh, that's creepy that they can do that now. And then we kind of get over it a minute later and just if it's more convenient, we'll we'll take it. This is The Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. The Zero Hour is the podcast where we talk to innovative, transformational thinkers across security, business management, innovation, technology, really whatever interests us at the cutting edge of what's happening today. Today's guests, very special, uh, Martin Cheenan, who's a professor of law at the University of Seattle, and Nathan Kohlener, who is also an instructor in the departments of management and philosophy in the business school, both of whom are working in developing ethical frameworks for AI and machine learning. We talk about what is machine learning, what is explainable AI, and they distill these big complex problems into understandable frameworks for us to think about as it relates to consumerism and business. Yes. And we also talk about Banjo and the Gitjo. I'm just going to leave it at that. Without further ado, here's Mark Cheenan and Nathan Kohler. This is Nathan. Hey, Nathan. This is George with Safeguard Cyber. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, George? Great. Uh, I also have on the line uh, my colleague, Ashley Stone. Hi there. Hi, Ashley. Um, And I also have Mark on the other line. I'm now going to attempt to merge the calls off of this iPhone. It's, okay, it's great. Just epic technology here. <laughs> um, okay, great. <clears throat> well, thank you for joining us, and we will uh, start right away. We'll start with you, Mark. We're going to ask the first few questions of both of you, but um, we'll start there. So, um, why don't we start out with the obvious, which is uh, Mark Chinon, you are in the law school, Nathan Kohlener, you're in the business school, but we'll start with you, Mark. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us what led you? to this research uh, into autonomous machines, artificial intelligence, and, and legal frameworks? How did you get from uh, your background to, to where you are in your current interest? Uh, well, that's a really good question, George. Um, so I've always been interested in uh, the, the concept of uh, legal responsibility. Uh, and so as I was developing my scholarship in this area, uh, it started to become clear that uh, that that as an issue uh, was coming to the fore with regard to uh, artificial intelligence, because of course the question is, is that as uh, algorithms and as, as you know, machines, et cetera, have uh, growing sophistication, uh, the question is, well, who's going to be responsible as a legal matter if uh, those uh, algorithms or machines are responsible for causing a harm? And so that's that's the reason for my interest in the area. Great. And uh, Nathan, what about you? I know you have a background so, in philosophy, but we're interested to see how you got here. Yes, my formal training is in philosophy. And um, when I was hired at Seattle University, um, I ended up mostly doing ethics, which was part of my training, um, not necessarily the, the main part. But that's where I found myself. And then um, I actually started teaching more and more applied ethics classes, and I started working with the business school. Um, so I was teaching more business ethics. And actually, during that time, I also 
um, got my MBA with a certificate in uh, business analytics. So I got really interested in um, how data and AI are changing stakeholder relationships. So the ways that, I mean, doing business ethics are always interested in um, managing stakeholder relationships, the most interesting ones being with customers and employees. Um, but then it became pretty obvious that AI is just completely changing how those relationships are, are managed. Um, and you want that obviously to be in a responsible way. Um, so that's how I got into it. Cool. That's great. So we've, we've heard AI a few times and would love to hear what each of your definitions of AI is. Yeah. So we'll start with you, Mark. We just want to make sure we're on the same uh, philosophical, ideological playing field, especially given that mm -hmm. it's a, a bit of a buzzword these days. So for the purposes of your arguments, if you yeah, could each take a turn. Sure. Well, as, as you were saying, uh, George and Esley, uh, you know, that term is, is now a buzzword. And so it's really kind of ill-defined and, you know, there really is no kind of working definition. But as I think of it, I think of it as, uh, you know, algorithms or devices which then are, you know, are able to perform certain tasks that normally or traditionally have required, uh, you know, certain human intelligence to do it. So that's sort of my running definition of uh, AI. Yeah, um, it's definitely um, definitely used all sorts of ways. I, I like to start with the question about what functions we associate with intelligence. Um, and so one of those would be prediction, another would be recognition, and then interaction. Um, when, when we encounter systems that are doing one of those three things, we think that's intelligent. Um, also memory, we do associate with intelligence, like if someone knows a lot of stuff or remembers a lot of things, but uh, data storage doesn't um, tempt us to, to think about artificial intelligence. So it's mostly prediction, recognition, and interaction. And so when those intelligence functions are manifest by machines rather than organic minds, um, I say that we've, you know, we're talking about artificial intelligence at mm -hmm. that point. Okay, good. We're, we're on the same page. Um, okay. So f for our listeners, before we launch into, uh, you know, thinking about, the ethical frameworks that can be applied um, or the the way that we should approach building those frameworks. Let's just make the most basic case. We're going to start out very general, which is um, why does ethics matter when it comes to uh, machine learning or AI? I mean, it, it seems obvious, but I w again want to get us grounded uh, so that we have a, a, a common language and a common understanding. So um, I think about ethics uh, in a in a pretty broad way. Um, you might say it's the way that Aristotle thought about ethics, but it's just the study of human well-being. So the ethical concern is a concern with human well-being. Um, and so ethics matters to any endeavor that affects human well-being. Um, so I'll just take an example. Um, in, in one of my fields that I work on, business ethics, if ethics is about human well-being, business ethics would just be um, defined as as how business affects human well-being. And um, we don't have to do much to make the case that machine learning and artificial intelligence are having um, already pretty dramatic effects on human well-being and, and will continue to in, in some expected and some unexpected ways. Um, but just because... Uh, it will um, have such an effect on us that makes it um, a field for ethical study. Fair point. 
And uh, Mark, your take? Well, uh, from from my perspective, and it, it really resonates with the nations, it's that um, AI uh, is already and has the potential of having enormous impacts on uh, on human beings, uh, society as a whole. And my, my other sense too, with regard to, of course, artificial intelligence is being developed by you know very large, you know, sophisticated companies. And I think most of us really you know, set out and want to do good and have positive impacts with what we do. And so I think there is that kind of motivation in our employees, the folks that are engaged in the standard design. So there's that personal reason as well. And then even from a, I want to call it a self-interested perspective, you know, as a, as a lawyer, obviously uh, these kinds of impacts will uh, raise legal issues. And so that sometimes the law stands as a way, as it were, uh, if if a person isn't thinking ethically or if those things are not taken into account, sometimes that will then bump up against the law. And then, you know, and then for me, even, I don't even know how to put it, even more self-interested perspective from the business, you know, you have to think about uh, uh, public relations, the uh, impact of uh, the community or the attitudes of the community towards what your corporation is doing, and often are taking uh, sort of ethical considerations into account as they're evaluating the company. Great. Yeah, I think um, a good starting point then is we did a lot of research. We wanted to come to the table prepared. So we looked at your presentations. We read your book. Um, so, uh, Mark, in your new book, which is called Law and Autonomous Machines, you're addressing AI largely through the lens of uh, autonomous machines taking mm-hmm. the tragedy of uh, the Uber self-driving car collision Um and uh, accidental death of Elaine Herzberg in Arizona. Uh, And that's the starting point. And you mentioned it earlier that AI tech is also inclusive of algorithms, not just machines as we think of traditional machines. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was reading in a follow-up to that uh, accident in in their investigations, the NTSB's, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board's conclusions point to the activities of the safety driver who was sitting in the mm-hmm. side seat and was supposed to be monitoring. I think they were watching an episode of The Voice on their phone. Um, Something like that. Yes. yes. But it it seemed that like the NTSB's conclusions were very much centered on that person, the safety driver, and mm-hmm. not on Uber, the person or entity that quote unquote manufactures the code or makes the autonomous machine. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering how do you think of that? It feels like that is a, a good um, litmus test of where we are right now, that we are contending with this technology, but our understanding of it is still very biased towards the humans. In other words, it's the safety driver's fault, not Uber's for mm-hmm. the code. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's a really good question and observation, George. Um, you know, as I read the press release by the NTSB, uh, you're quite right to say that they identify the probable cause of that accident as the failure of the safety driver to be attentive uh, while the uh, vehicle was in operation. Uh, but it also notes that a contributing factor to the accident was uh, what they call, I think I'm quoting this, um, Uber's, quote, inadequate safety culture, unquote. And part of that uh, involves the failure to anticipate the kinds of um, uh, limitations of uh, the actual algorithms that they were using, as well as what they were doing with with the with the vehicle itself, uh, turning off certain features, et cetera. Uh, that also was a contributing factor to the design. And in particular, uh, there's one uh, as we're finding by the MTSB that the that the system design itself 
was unable to correctly uh, classify and uh, predict the path of uh, Elaine Hertzberg as she was crossing mm-hmm. uh, the, the street at that time. So the, the point being is this, is that, um, that you are quite right that right now, and I think appropriately so, the focus is on the human beings that either are operating or designing uh, this uh, technology. Uh, but there is a kind of growing focus, as it were, on the algorithms and, the, and the, as it were, the design itself. So that it, it's still humans, but it's also now bringing into into that into that uh, into consideration uh, the algorithm. And so, of course, that raises even more interesting questions about, well, what happens then if the algorithm itself is flawed? So who's responsible for that? Mm, indeed. Right. So, Nathan, from a business standpoint, what are the implications here for the end user? Um, for uh, autonomous vehicles specifically, are you thinking? Uh, yes, or in, in general, but I think in the, in this use case. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm watching with interest to see how this plays out in terms of um, what customers how customers are going to adopt um, AV technology. I have some predictions. Um, I mean, some people are afraid if, you know, AVs are quote unquote willing to harm their own passengers, um, then no one's going to ever get in an AV car. And um, I think that's probably wrong. I think the the most relevant comparison is probably airline travel. Um, There are a few similarities, pretty strong similarities, I think. So one is that um, the statistics are clear. I mean, airline travel is far, far safer um, than a human driving a car. And and we already have some data, and that data is just going to continue, um, that riding in an autonomous vehicle is actually statistically far safer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, even though there are fewer accidents and fatalities. And maybe this is because there are fewer accidents and fatalities in the airline industry. The ones that do happen um, get on everybody's radar screen. So that's immediate national news. And I think, um, I think a similar thing is going to be true with AV fatalities. Um, So, you know, several hundred people tragically, unfortunately die because of traffic every day. Um, and those things don't become national news. But, you know, in, in reference to the conversation we just had, we get this one example and now, the, you know, there's um, books written about it. Mm-hmm. And the other important similarity is that, you know, despite the sensational nature of the fatalities, the airline industry isn't having a problem finding people that want to fly. I mean, I'm there are always going to be a few people who will just never get an airplane, but uh, not in general. And I think um, what we're going to see is, is a pretty similar thing uh, that people will just kind of get over their fears and just get in those autonomous vehicles because they're going to be so much more convenient. Yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I tried to hail yeah, an, an I autonomous. <laughs> I tried to hail an autonomous so cab while I was in Vegas for CES, but they were always unavailable. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's interesting because uh, you raise the point of user behavior or consumer behavior, and in which case we are opting in, right? I'm choosing to use an autonomous vehicle. I'm making a choice. Yeah. I think, um, and this is going to go into my next question, There, what about the case in which AI is being deployed 
and that there hasn't been a choice. I mean, sometimes that's algorithmically, sometimes mm-hmm. that is, um, it's just part of the working process behind the scenes and you may not know, uh, or it's buried somewhere in a TNC that, you know, the mm-hmm. data is going to be processed using artificial intelligence. Yeah, those are, that's when it gets, uh, much more uh, complicated, and as and I think that's going to become more prevalent. And as almost then, as it were, things where it's explicitly, you know, autonomous vehicles or artificial intelligence being used. Uh, there, uh, I don't know if they would have uh, good answers yet, uh, George. I think part of it will be uh, issues related to disclosure, so that people will have an opportunity to know that. For example, that their insurance application or something was, as were processed in part by uh, uh, reference to an algorithm, for example, and uh, abilities then to do something about it if if an outcome is not favorable. But uh, those are the questions I think people are just beginning to wrestle with. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a tricky issue that we are now wrestling with it, but we're we're it's we are laying the track while the train is running, right? We yes, things indeed. are in place, but we haven't yet figured it out. And yes, it's exciting that we are talking about it, but it has like mm-hmm. a material impact on many lives. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, I mean, I think we're kind of past the point of. I mean, because artificial intelligence is changing everything so deeply, um, it's not really possible to opt in or out. I mean, that language almost doesn't make sense. But even if, I mean, even if we did have a moment where, or there were certain kinds of technologies that you could choose to opt in or opt out, I I go back to my prediction about um, autonomous vehicle adoption, which is that, you know, we as a human species have a very long and, and uh, pretty obvious history with trading away convenience, you know, for, quote unquote creepiness. You know, when we say like, oh, that's creepy that they can do that now. And then we kind of get over it a minute later and just, if it's more convenient, we'll, we'll take it. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so that comes to the, around to the next question about algorithms. So, um, Mark, in your book, you write about uh, towards the, the back half. It's about mm-hmm. the difference between assigning responsibility uh, so or liability mm-hmm. versus trying to measure harm. I found that to be an interesting distinction. And then, again, when we're examining the case of Elaine Hertzberg and Uber and the accident, I mean, that harm is quite clear. A person is hit with a vehicle and dies. But the harm from algorithms seems much harder to, um, for lack of a better word, quantify or actually even see. Like, we may not know um, the results until well well after the fact. I think a, a good example of that might be uh, the 2016 elections where it only came to light much later with much more scrutiny that disinformation operations, you know, I don't think you can even draw a hard and fast line. This led right. to that, but it clearly had an influence and we know that it was in place. So mm-hmm. um, in terms of, I was just curious about how you might apply some of the frameworks you wrote about to, to algorithmic AI versus uh, machine AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of things I might say. Uh, first of all, um, the, the, the reasons why I think, uh, as we're automated and I mean, uh, autonomous machines raises issues because of the algorithms and the other kinds of software which enable uh, these uh, machines to act autonomously. So we're, we're sort of on the same page there. I think I might say, say this is one of the distinctions that I made or I've tried to make in the book uh, is between, instead of say the difference between 
assigning responsibility and assessing responsibility or or measuring harm. It's uh, the distinction that we make sometimes before uh, between uh, as we're um, well as, as we say as uh, assessing responsibility. That is, we tend to ask the question, well, who is responsible for for a harm, and we you know, used uh, the individual model that, you know, somebody was culpable, somebody was negligent, somebody was reckless, they caused the harm. And as you say, when uh, algorithms become more and more sophisticated, it's going to be harder and harder to say that. Um, so one of the arguments I make, I make in the book is that it might be tempting then for us as a society to start to uh, assign blame instead of uh, identify or assign responsibility instead of to identify who's responsible. Because it's going to be hard to, as we draw these really tight links between, say, particular individuals, say, like individual programmers, and a harm that is caused by an algorithm that, that they might have had a, a hand in designing. And the fact is, is that there are actually some, you know, think tanks and some uh, industry boards or other folks working in this area who are saying, at least ethically, the designer of that algorithm has a moral responsibility with respect to that, that particular harm. Uh, but part of the purpose of the book is to really explore that, to say, well, you know, under our traditional understandings of both legal and moral responsibility, that's pretty hard to do. Yeah. And um, if you don't mind, I would like to jump in with uh, just like a little clarification to, um, regarding the distinction between algorithmic AI and machine AI. Um, so it, it's a it's a really it seems like a technical point, but it ends up um actually being important, which is that uh, algorithms are actually, even though they're just like code, they're lines of code, they still count as machines, which isn't how we normally use the word machine, but, but it is, uh, an algorithm is a machine. Um, uh, so when we think of machines, we think of robots. Um, but uh, the, the reason that that distinction is important is because I'm, it's, I'm, I'm not just, you know, the guy that corrects people's grammar or something. But when it comes to uh, talking about machine learning, um, if that's the idea, if we're thinking of like robot learning, then, you know, I'm worried that people might start thinking about, you know, those videos that get shared on social media of, uh, you know, um, robots jumping on boxes and opening doors and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that is like not machine learning, right? Machine learning is just algorithms discovering correlations. Um, so that that's why I think it's important to preserve, to, to understand that algorithms still count as machines. Mm -hmm. That's a great point of clarification and a great segue into a question we have for you, which is, we saw in one of your presentations, you point to the ethical questions of the black box, so to speak, when it comes to machine learning. Can you elaborate yeah. on what that means? Sure. Um, so I think the easiest way is to kind of start with the opposite point, which is I've never heard anyone argue in favor of just accepting a block black box approach to machine learning. So what I mean is no one says, yeah. we have no idea how this technology works. We have no idea um, how the algorithms work. Um, and that's okay. Like, I've never heard anyone make that argument. I would appreciate <laughs> less transparency. Right. Yes. Um, so, so since that is kind of the value that everyone seems to share, it seems like that leads right into the question about, okay, so what kinds of techniques and methods are available to help us explain what the algorithm is up to? And I understand why people jump to that question, but I think if you start out, start out there, um, it's pretty much going to be impossible to do any investigation. Um, and the basic reading reason is there's so many variables 
so many uh, different kinds of machine learning types, um, different kinds of algorithms, different standards for um, what counts as an explanation. So um, we have to back up and there's a previous question, um, which is what kind of thing counts as an explanation that we want, an explanation that's worth having. Um, that is a good uh, a previous step, a necessary previous step to, to answering the question about like what kinds of techniques are available in computer science to help us explain the algorithm. But the way that, back to your original question then, the way that ethics enters this is that even just starting with the question of what kind of thing counts as a good explanation here, that's even that's not enough um, for some of the reasons that I just mentioned. There's so many variables and a definite number of, of kinds of explanation. So I think actually the question that you need to start with is um, what's the goal of the explanation? Why do we want this explanation? And th that the answer to that question is almost certainly going to be ethical and or legal in nature. So the goal would be um, to ensure trust or to make sure there's no bias um, in this algorithm or to ensure that engineers are able to make changes to obviously harmful systems, just like a governance question right. or a question. This is to, to Mark's research about legal accountability. Um, so th those things are going to be, you know, legal and ethical answers. And, and that's really where you have to start. So like, why do we want, yes, we want explainable artificial intelligence. Sometimes it's, it's called that um, explainable artificial intelligence. Yes, we want that. But then you have to ask yourself, well, what's the goal of getting an explanation? And so once you have that in mind, once you can say, well, we want to figure out if there's bias in the system. Now you can start doing more meaningful kinds of things like, okay, so what kind of explanation do we need here? And then you end up with the question of what sorts of technologies are available to, to um, help, help us get the kind of answer that we need. Indeed. That's, that's, yeah, that's a good point. And at, at, from a pure business standpoint, um, when we were trying to develop the machine learning required to just help our clients deal with stuff at massive scale, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of messages a day. Um, it's interesting because the conundrum that our developers faced was our, a lot of our clients are in regulated industries, which means they are in an auditable environment, which means you can't have somebody come in to audit your process and then say, why did you flag that for review? And you're like, I don't know, the computer did it. Like you, like shrugging your yeah, shoulders is not, not is not an option. Right. Mm -hmm. um, great, great. That's, well, that's 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 interesting. Um, I did want to let's pivot for uh, a moment here. Just take a a slight brain break before we dig into the real meaty application part uh, of the ethics inquiry. So interesting tidbit. Uh, we were looking for y'all's headshots to get on the site for this particular podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. I did notice that the Google algorithm, as it were, uh, Mark revealed to me that you are a banjo player. Uh, that is correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, and uh, well, and actually through banjo purist, it's a, it is a get through. So it is a banjo that is thrown in tune like a guitar, but it's on a banjo, you know, with a banjo head and the, the soundboard. So it sounds like a banjo and I just play it like a guitar. Oh, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> no, Very cool. Didn't, didn't know that. Um, 
Um, so what kind of, what kind of music do you pick as it were? I mean, we're calling from Virginia, naturally bluegrass country. Right. Uh, uh, we are well versed in banjo. And but neither of us can play. And yeah. hoping that you Actually, play shows out in Charlottesville. You are out in the region, which is the home to banjo playing. But uh, I, so I play in a, in a band with, uh, uh, and the, the group tends to be kind of oriented towards folk and has some uh, bluegrass influence. And uh, that's the reason for the banjo, so that we can have some of that, uh, capture some of that sound in our in our music. Uh, but I, well, since we're on the topic of um, Topic of uh, music, but I also happen to be raised in Hawaii, and so I actually play a lot of Hawaiian music as well in a, in a group too. So those are my two sort of areas of music. Oh, that's interesting. I figure yeah, it's a pretty good way to blow off the steam from a heady day of uh, you know trying to figure out artificial intelligence. <laughs> Indeed, it is. It's a good mental break. I agree with you. Um, okay, so let's turn our uh, attention back to. Um, yep, yeah, back to the, the interview. Um, mm-hmm. So this is actually very timely because just as we had been uh, arranging this interview and getting through the, the books and the presentations, I was also reading Malcolm Gladwell's new Talking to Strangers. And mm-hmm. um, he refers to a prominent 2017 study done by John Kleinberg and several others that found uh, that an AI uh, program demonstrably outperformed human judges, even though they had, Mm -hmm. it had substantively less information to go on, quote unquote, um, Mm -hmm. when it came to making bail decisions. And so Gladwell has said on subsequent interviews that it's not like he's advocating for full AI, uh, judges because he's very much of the opinion that humans need to sentence humans, but but he's talks about Mm -hmm. maybe a blending of, or using AI as a tool rather than a substitute. Um, So I was just, because this touched on the the legal profession, Mark, I was just curious, where Mm -hmm. does his point fall in the current zeitgeist? Have you heard debate at legal conferences about this particular issue, whether it's case review, whether it's bail decisions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, that's a, uh, that's a very good question. So um, that whole area as where is use of AI in, uh, sort of in law enforcement, as you say, is kind of a subset of the more general question about the use of AI in the legal profession. My, my own sense is that um, it is right now or on the cusp of, uh, of this being used. And uh, you might be aware that um, AI is already being used in several aspects of the legal practice. Uh, most you know, predominantly, of course, was with uh, regard to legal research. And uh, of course, that was basically working through databases, through mm-hmm. queries. But now, as becoming much more sophisticated, uh, law firms are using uh, AI in connection with, uh, say, document production. Uh, there's some work, early work being done on uh, the use of uh, AI in uh, reviewing contracts, too. So I think everybody sees, uh, and this is to your point, uh, that uh, AI is going to be kind of, a, a, I don't know, a, uh, used as an assistant uh, to humans as our human lawyers as uh, they engage in the practice of law. So it'll be uh, a great time saver in many ways. And then there are going to be some activities that lawyers do that only humans can do. Great. Yeah, I have a couple things to say about that. I yes. mean, in, in general, I think Gladwell's point is pretty balanced. And and I'm definitely an AI optimist. I'm, I like thinking about all the ways that it could make our future a better future. Although in the specific 
case, I mean, I confess I haven't read John Kleinberg's study, but um, the, you know, the bail thing has been happening. The recidivism algorithms have been happening for a few years. Um, and I mean, ju- just uh, in a case study, I mean, I was doing a case study for a class. So the question is like, so, so where, where does the data input come from? Like, you know, the algorithm found something and it made a prediction, but like, you know, what is the basis of its prediction? What, where, where did the data come from? And so, I mean, you can't legally put in like things like race and gender mm-hmm. into your algorithm. Like um, that's going to be a huge problem. So, so w- what are the actual inputs? And um, I tracked down a survey. I mean, it wasn't like hard to track down. It was like, the second page of Google probably. Um, but, but this survey is where they get the data inputs from. So when, um, people are booked in jail, uh, they, they're given this survey. It's I think 137 questions and most of the questions, um, you don't really need, uh, an algorithm or it didn't seem to me in order to connect, um, uh, people's answer to the question to predictions of recidivism. So, I mean, there would be questions like, have you ever been in a gang? Um, is your dad in jail? Is your mom? in?" I mean, questions that are like, well, if you answered them one way, yeah, obviously you have a, a lot less, you know, a chance of, of, you know, um, living a, a successful law problem free life. Um, and I, I'm not saying that all, all recidivism algorithms are like that. But in this particular one, you know, you think the, the algorithm spit out a number and this number predicts the future and it's almost magical. And I can't believe the machines are doing this, but if you start to break it down, um, it can, you know, become unimpressive when you look at where they're getting the data from. And, and that's not a comment on all, um, AI technologies. As I said, I'm, I'm actually an optimist, but in that particular case, um, I'm a little skeptical of the recidivism algorithms that he's referring to. Mm-hmm. to I, I should also point out uh, uh, in this point that uh, there is a, a, a Kleinberg and his co-authors uh, study, uh, but there are other ones that you know have cast doubt on uh, were the non-biased uh, nature of the, of the of these kinds of algorithms that they, that some of them raise problems. I think uh, I think the the, ta- the major takeaway is it's still kind of early days in terms of assessing. Uh, these algorithms for 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 bias because of the problems that Nathan is describing. Indeed, I think yes, we've you know discovered recently, even in um, you know something as lighthearted as social media face filters and stuff like that, that if the, mm-hmm. if the machine learning was trained on predominantly Caucasian data sets, that it has a hard time with uh, darker skin tones, which is obviously a structural bias built into the into the machine mm-hmm. learning. Um, as it were. So that, that is a good point. And in terms of AI optimism, I think, uh, I am usually a bit of a Luddite, but I did hear some interesting ideas that gave me pause when it came to the medical profession. Similarly, AI being better able to detect cancers than human radiographers. And there are some doctors who are very, um, gung ho about AI, because if, if you think about the heavy lift that doctors have to do, just inputting, data in terms of taking in symptoms and stuff and trying to decide is actually, it takes a lot of effort and that's a lot of mm-hmm. training 
but it's actually kind of the least impactful part of their job. It's how they discuss care, how they manage uh, patients through, you know, painful therapies. Like they have less time for that because they spend all of their time on paperwork and um, just symptomatic, right. just diagnoses. And if AI could take that off their shoulders, they they actually welcome the chance to be more of the caregiver or, or, or guardian of that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a great observation, uh, George. And it, I think it goes back to a point that you, Ashley, and uh, Nathan were discussing with, with regard to explainability, is that um, I, I really I, I also tend to gravitate more towards impact so that, for example, if we're using an algorithm in, say, diagnoses, and we find that it's far more accurate, et, et cetera, enables uh, physician, human physicians to spend more time with patients, then we would say that's also the good. Uh, at the same time, though, if we you know uh, deploy that kind of uh, technology, and then we find that uh, you know certain kinds of uh, certain gr- uh, people groups, certain groups are receiving less medical care than others, that so that those that we still are seeing skewed results, uh, then we can start asking questions about well, what what adjustments do we need to make to these algorithms that that permit that? Uh, at least it raises that question. So we're really always focused on, at least in my view, focused on uh, what. Uh, Nathan referred to earlier as, as were the goals of the technology, mm-hmm. but also we can talk about the impacts of the technology on, on people. So we've we've talked a little bit about other use cases and when technology could be used to to make a, an impact, whether it's from the medical or legal profession. Uh, mm-hmm. I also imagine it could be used when it comes to screening job applications or maybe other commercial use cases. Mm-hmm. Have you seen businesses thinking or approaching the idea of AI and legal ethics and using this technology already? Uh, in my, uh, at least in, in, in the work I do, I haven't had direct contact with businesses that are um, that are thinking about or using this kind of technology. It's just based on what I've read. Uh, as, uh, it sounds like as the same kind of articles that you've read, uh, Ashley. So I'm aware, for example, that uh, some firms are using uh, AI as a way to screen job applications or look at resumes, et cetera. And so that raises, uh, I think, you know, it creates an interesting set of arguments about, well, on the one hand, uh, you know, the AI is actually reviewing every application, whereas a human uh, in HR with a stack of resumes, uh, really it's impossible for that person to give every one of those resumes the attention that each resume deserves. So it's it's that kind of uh, question about the, the trade-off between uh, enabling review, uh, but at the same time uh, raising the possibility that the results could be could be skewed uh, just because of the way in which the algorithm that was uh, that's sifting through these resumes has been designed. Uh, and it, so again, it, it feels like early days, and so it's again something that immediately deserves our attention, and that we're just going to have to keep on evaluating to see what the results are. Yeah, and that's a great example on the employee side. Um, on the customer side, this is really a revolution. Um, you can think of it as a marketing revolution, but it's much broader than that. So, it, I mean, it's hard to think about this, but businesses haven't always been focused on customer needs and wants. Um, that's only been maybe since the 40s or 50s that businesses have understand that in order to be a successful business, we have to figure out a way to connect the goods and services that we provide to the needs and wants of the customers. So that's like a familiar marketing line, mm-hmm. uh, but actually hasn't been around forever. So the, the problem though was that that was identified as what we need to do. 
Um, but then there was all this, uh, all these different ways to do it that are various levels of ineffective, you know, uh, focus groups, um, uh, intuition, you know, guessing, uh, you know, beta testing, these sorts of things. And I mean, what's happened in the last few years, and it's really just the last few years, is that since everyone's um, carrying around supercomputers in their pockets, all of a sudden we have massive amounts of data available about everybody. And so if you're a business, you're thinking, well, that's the most valuable thing in the world because this whole time, the whole last 80 years or so, I mean, we've been trying to figure out how to understand customers' needs and wants. And all of a sudden that's within reach. So that that makes people who um, can figure out how to use AI technologies very valuable because the data itself is not valuable just because there's so much of it. It's like trying to get a drink um, from the fire hose. in the ocean. <laughs> But but um, what you can do is figure out how to use algorithms to be able to make sense of some of that data. And then you get business intelligence out of that. Yeah, I was I was just at a show uh, sort of co-located with CES and I was listening to a bunch of CMOs and a lot of them had um, two I don't know, gripes, as it were. One, the way in which AI and ML are bandied about. And if you take a substantive look under the hood, it's quite different. And then two, um, they're like gathering data is no longer the problem, right? It's about getting the data uh, and mm-hmm. getting it to make sense at, to that you can then take an action because just understanding all of these data points about your customer is kind of overwhelming and you can get – it's like the par- right. paradox of choice. You're faced with like the toothpaste aisle and you can't make any decisions. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I guess another question as we are approaching – International Data Privacy Day at the end of this month. How should these businesses evaluate AI tools when they're looking to adopt them? Because at at a most basic level of just data gathering, we've already seen massive evidence that some businesses either can't secure the data properly, like they just leave their S3 buckets misconfigured in Amazon, uh, sorry, AWS, or um, they don't have visibility into third-party data providers who are collecting the data and also leaving them completely unsecured in like Elasticsearch databases or, or what have you. So it's sort of, you know, we're at a point where I think consumers understand that the power of their own data and uh, especially GDPR and CCPA raising the specter that they have uh, the option to opt in, opt out. That's a very powerful choice. But I think, you know, how, how do they make these decisions when they sort of haven't nailed the fundamentals? Yeah, I think this is going to be um, a real big issue for business, obviously, in the next um, few decades. I mean, th- the default is going to be um, just figuring out what sorts of, I'm going to call them big data solutions. These are just business solutions that are possible now just because of the existence of big data. So they're going to, you know, the 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 bottom metrics will be um, what increases our business's efficiency and what increases our, the accuracy of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we, we really have to hope that, um, that businesses are also going to have like an ethics metric, um, as they're evaluating these, these new tools. Um, and you know, how, what the future is going to look like there, um, is not totally clear. Um, uh, Mark and I are actually, um, faculty affiliates for, um, um, an initiative in ethics and transformative technologies. It's uh, through Seattle University, but funded by Microsoft. And I mean, one of the things we're thinking about there is how can we 
how can we offer a service um, to businesses um, to help them evaluate these things from legal and ethical standpoint? Oh, good. Um, you anticipated my question, which is, are, are, the, are the business schools and the law schools talking to one another since there's an obvious overlap here? Well, ours is. I don't know <laughs> if everyone else's is, but that's fair yeah. point. Fair point. Um, okay. Well, I think that's probably uh, enough for today in terms of our schedules and your schedules, and also we covered a lot of ground. So, thank you very much for for taking the time out of your busy days to to weigh in here. We really appreciate your expertise and your time. Well, thank that was you enjoyable. Fun. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much for having thank you. And we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, give us a rating, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, In the meantime, we give our thanks to Abby Bruce, as ever, for sound design and production, Matias Cephalidi for our theme music. And until next time, stay safe. This is The Safeguard, Zero Hour, signing off.